Alright, and welcome to the Raw is Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, and today we look at the final Monday Night Battle of 1995, the December 18 episodes of Raw and Nitro. Now, December 18 won't be the final episode of Nitro for 1995, because they will be airing an episode on December 25th, Christmas Day, but Raw will be preempted, meaning we'll resume the Monday Night Wars as of January 1st, 1996. So, once we wrap up all the pay-per-views, we are officially leaving what is widely considered the worst year in the history of professional wrestling. So yeah, 1996 is rapidly approaching, we're pretty much nearly there, but we've got a little bit of business to dispense of first, so obviously we've got tonight's episode, uh, Raw and Nitro, we've got the last two pay-per-views of the year, which will be Starcade up against the In Your House pay-per-view, and then we are going to have a flashback to King of the Ring 1995 up against the Great American Bash. But before we do, let's get through Raw and Nitro, so the final head-to-head battle of 1995 fell in the favour of Nitro with a 2.7 rating to Raw's 2.3 decently they're starting to stretch out we'll see if that becomes a pattern early or if it takes a little while to establish the dominance sorry and without any further ado we're going to head on over to nitro first and see what it was that won them the ratings battle on this night Georgia on this evening with the usual commentary team of Eric Bischoff, Bobby the Brain Heenan and Steve Mongo McMichael with Pepe the Mexican. Eric Bischoff is wearing quite the snazzy outfit with a white turtleneck underneath a black coat but whoa 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 hold up we're seconds into the show and I recognize this moment in time. Uh, I've seen it on many WWE propaganda pieces you will all have seen this clip before it is time for Medusa to come to the broadcast table. If you haven't seen this by now, I'm not quite sure how you got to be listening to this podcast. It is a very historic moment. Um, I won't bother playing it because everybody's seen it, in my opinion. And it's basically Medusa comes out holding the World Wrestling Federation's Women's Championship belt. She comes out, grabs a microphone and says, I am Medusa. I always have been Medusa. Well, you know, discounting that last two or three years where she's been a laundry blaze, but you get the point. And she just dumps the title in the trash out the blue, no grandstanding or making a big deal out of it. It's gone. She says WCW is where the big boys play, and now it's going to be where the big girls play as well. So it looks like she's come back home. And I guess that rivalry that they were brewing with Aja Kong goes out the window, which is probably, to me, the biggest disappointment of this whole thing. At that point, I couldn't care less about the title, but that Alondra blaze Aja Kong match could have been pretty good. The strangeness continues here as Medusa walks off. Bischoff takes the title out of the trash, has a bit of a look at it, and drops it back in there. Um, Mongo and Bischoff are really playing this up. Heenan is really saying nothing. Um, Going back and reading Bobby Heenan's book and listening to interviews and stuff with him later on, he made it pretty clear that he wasn't going to bash the WWF, and this was obvious here, looking back, knowing with that that hindsight. Mongo then brings out uh, the... refrigerator William Perry who you might remember from Wrestlemania 2 fame and his little battle royal appearance basically says that he's going to look after things tonight so that's pretty cool 
And then from there, they throw us to our first match of the evening, which is going to be Ric Flair up against Eddie Guerrero. So quite the battle to open us up here. Unfortunately, Eddie Guerrero, as usual, gets a jobber entrance. He's already in the ring. And when Ric Flair comes out, he does get a really good pop with the crowd going mental for Ric Flair all through his entrance and well before the lockups. So a little bit of stalling and playing to the crowd before we get the action underway. They start off with a nice sequence of chain wrestling before Eddie Guerrero lands a pretty sweet looking drop kick and a couple of drop toe holds. And then Flair fires back with some chops, a strut and a big woo. But then Eddie Guerrero returns a favor, hits some chops of his own, woos and a big strut for for good measure there as well. Ric Flair then bails out to the outside to catch his breath. When he comes back in, Guerrero keeps the pace up pretty well, hitting two nice drop kicks but missing a third. When Flair goes to get on the offense, though, uh, Guerrero wraps him up with a small package, which earns a two count, and a backslide, which earns a two count as well. With the commentators really talking up Eddie Guerrero here, I mentioned uh, quite a few shows back when Benoit was debuting how much they were praising him, and there was very similar uh, efforts to get Guerrero over while they were doing this here. Guerrero sends Flair into the turnbuckles and comes charging in, but Flair gets up a boot and then drops a knee on the prone Eddie Guerrero before attempting another move, which Guerrero counters and locks in a Tornado DDT for a two count. That looked really nice. Locks a hold of Ric Flair's wrist and runs up the middle of the rope, so first, second, third, and bounces off with a nice-looking Hurricane Rana for a really nice-looking move there. Unfortunately, he goes for high risk once too often as he gets on the top rope and Ric Flair falls against the rope, causing Guerrero to lose his balance and falls straight from the top turnbuckle to the outside, seemingly jarring his knee and injuring it in the process. I did wonder whether or not this injury was entirely fictional or if there was a bit of realism to it, simply because it was the right knee he was selling and typically wrestlers always work over the left limb, so we'll be interested to see if Guerrero is competing in the weeks ahead now. Flair gets Guerrero back in the ring and in pretty short order gets him in the figure four leg lock. But Guerrero in a moment really designed to get him over is just refusing to tap out. Uh, Flair's getting a hold of the ropes whenever the referee's not looking and wrenching in the hold. And eventually Guerrero, who absolutely refuses to submit and says as much, passes out. And while he's laying on the mat, the referee counts his shoulders for the one, two, three. A really good example of how a veteran can beat a younger star and still get him over. Because Guerrero looked like an absolute badass during that sequence and Flair still picks up the victory. Arn Anderson then comes out while Flair's stomping on Guerrero, who the referee's trying to get out of the ring. Mean Gene comes in and tells him to knock it off or he won't interview the two of them. Arn's uh, first on the mic and he's talking a little bit about uh, the interaction last week with Paul Orndorff when he got involved with Brian Pillman after the match. Before they get too deep into it though, Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart come out. Um, Kevin Sullivan talks up the Four Horsemen as one of the greatest groups of all time, while Gene literally tells all the wrestlers to look at the hard camera in a very poor production moment for the usually slick Nitro. As it turns out, Kevin Sullivan's not come out just to talk up the Four Horsemen. He's very upset with Brian Pillman mocking them in the clip I played on the last show where he's basically taking the mickey out of the Zodiac, and really, we've all done that, so why not? There's a little bit of a standoff. Flair tries to defuse it, but Arn gets his back up a little bit. He's a bit pissed off about this line of questioning, and they sort of, you know, no one really gives any ground, and Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan eventually leave. We go back to the commentary table for them to have a bit of a chat about what's gone on in the show so far and the main event still to come. And then we get a very surreal moment as Sergeant Craig Pittman comes out and I'll play that for you right now. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pitbull Pittman. No, now what? I'm sorry. Well, good day, gentlemen. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to talk to you. Oh, oh, oh. Wait a minute, let me hold this for you. If you've got something to say, let's make sure everybody can hear it. I've been doing a lot of sneaking and peeking and come to find out you were one of the best managers of all time. I would like to ask you 
to manage the pit bull to the world title. And what do you have to say? How about it, Bobby? You want me to manage you? That's affirmative. Well, sir, I, I, I don't manage anymore. I'm a broadcast journalist. But I will put you onto somebody that can handle your situation. Maybe a Mr. Jimmy Hart. Maybe somebody with intelligence that can handle your finances and handle everything. I'd be more than glad to help you. But at this particular time in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm busy doing this. But it would be an honor to manage you. But I'll do the best I can to help you. I, you know. If I don't get help soon, I'm not going to take any prisoners. Don't, don't look at me when you say that. Got nothing to do with this. The pitfall. So yeah, that was a little bit strange and, and well worth sharing, I think. Um, we go to a commercial break, and when we come back, it's time for Lex Luger up against Buff Bagwell. Early on, Lex gets a nice hip toss, uh, but Buff Bagwell fires back with a pretty sweet-looking monkey flip, and then a hip toss of his own. Lex is on the apron looking the wrong way, and Buff Bagwell drop kicks him to the arena floor, and Lex Luger throws a little bit of a tantrum on the floor. Um, when he gets back in the ring, there's a little bit of a back and forth, and after not too long, Scotty Riggs appears at ringside as well, a tag team partner at Buff Bagwell. Um, sorry, I should be saying Marcus Alexander Bagwell, but it's just force of habit. Um, Buff hits a nice backdrop for a two, and then a couple of clotheslines, and Lex gets his knees up on a splash attempt by Buff Bagwell. Lex then immediately hits him with a power slam, throws him up in the rack, and that's all she wrote. So another good win for Lex Luger here. They're establishing some dominance on him in the last few weeks, and they are making him look like a legitimate threat to the title, as well as building his storyline with Sting. So hats off to WCW for getting Lex over so well here, especially coming off his failed Lex Express run. Gene comes out to interview uh, Lex and Jimmy Hart in the aisle, and they basically both just call him the uncrowned champ, talking about how he had Macho Man pinned before Hogan made the save. We go to a commercial, and on the way out, they tell us what to expect on WCW Saturday night. This week, it'll be Arna Anderson up against Mark Miro, um, Alex Wright up against IRS, um, or Vincent Wall Street, as he's known in WCW, the Pitbull up against the Cobra, and we'll see appearances by Lex Luger and Sting, so make sure you tune in Saturday, 6.05. When we come back, it's time for our next matchup, which is Earl Robert of Eaton up against Sting. During the introductions, Mongo hits us with one of his best lines of the night when he says to Sting, knock the Great Britain out of this guy, Stinger. Mm, a, he's not really from Great Britain, and B, it doesn't really work that way, but it was a good line, Mongo. I liked it. Match gets underway with a pretty quick start from Sting with a nice leapfrog and a monkey flip before Bobby Eaton slows it down by working over the arm a little bit. And he hits a really cool-looking move. Looks like he's going to spinebuster Sting, but instead he drops him into an inverted backbreaker-type move over his leg. That was pretty cool. Misses a top rope knee, though, and this allows Sting to throw him into the corner, hit a huge Stinger splash, and put on the Scorpion Deathlock for the submission victory. So that's Sting and Lex now, both made to look good against name opponents on this night, both heading into that triangle match to try and get it themselves a shot at the WCW title. So really good booking all round. And like, like they did with Lex, Gene comes out to interview Sting. Uh, Sting basically says he's on a roll and that he's feeling pretty good. Uh, Gene tries to stir the pot about Lex Luger and Sting's having none of it, so fair play to you, Sting. And we go to our next commercial break. When we come back, it's time for our main event of the evening, and a huge main event on this episode of Nitro, the Macho Man Randy Savage defending his WCW title up against the Giant. Giant's out first, and he comes out with Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart, and it's incredible looking back at how slim the Giant was here. He was really in good shape. Macho Man comes out to another big pop for the night, um... 
the early story in the match is Macho throwing punches at the Giant, trying to dodge the offense and get out of the way. And he actually gets a sleeper hold on the Giant early doors and tries to put him down. Giant does fade a bit, but eventually he comes back, gets Macho by the hair and snaps him over his body quite hard to the canvas. Jimmy Hart gets on the apron early as well and Macho Man knocks the Giant right into him, so sends him flying back to the floor. And then Macho Man with his injured arm very stupidly tries to slam on the Giant, which doesn't work and allows the Giant to take control with some pounding offense body slams the macho man himself and puts on a bear hug and it's pretty obvious with this bear hug that he's done it so that he can get some information about where to go to next because as soon as he locks it in macho begins whispering in his ear you can't pick up anything that he says but it's pretty obvious what's going on we also go to a commercial break which gives the giant some more time to figure out what they're doing next and when we come back he hits another body slam on the macho man macho man gets a hold of the giant's eyes and seemingly rakes the eyes but it takes about 15 seconds for the rake to go through so it's kind of like an eye lock if you will a little bit strange uh then comes off with two big clotheslines on the giant before the giant catches him coming off the ropes and hits a back breaker for a two count he then tosses the macho man to the outside goes outside picks him up in a gorilla press and presses him back in over the top rope which is always an impressive spot Unfortunately, though, in another impressive but unwise spot, the giant climbs a top turnbuckle and comes off with an awkward-looking splash or headbutt, misses completely and is really sort of down hurt from this one. This allows Macho to go straight up the top rope, hit his patented flying elbow, gets a two count, and on the kick out, the giant absolutely presses Macho Man into the air, which is always another impressive spot. The Giant then hits a Macho Man with a drop kick mid-point from Eric Bischoff. He was just talking about something random in the main event scene, and he doesn't stop and immediately go, oh my god, drop kick from the Giant. He just continues his point like nothing happened, and eventually when he shuts up, Bobby Heenan has to say, can you believe the agility of this man to throw a drop kick at that size? Which is exactly what Bischoff should have been doing when it happened. The giant then hits a Macho Man with a huge choke slam. Um, seemingly Macho is down to be covered but instead Giant wants to come off the ropes and hit him with Hulk Hogan's finish of the big leg for the pin so he does hit the leg drop we get one we get two and no Hulk Hogan slides in the ring and hits the Giant with a chair so before we get into the ending sequence of the show and what happened after the match mark this down Macho Man's had the title for under a month and twice top contenders have having pinned clean in the ring and Hulk Hogan has come and broken up the pin so Whilst it's becoming a bit of a common theme on this show, Hulk Hogan once again earns our dick move of the week for basically doing things with the Macho Man's title reign that he would never do with his own. There's no way you would see a heel have Hogan pinned clean and one of his buddies come out and rescue him from being pinned. But now twice in three weeks for Macho Man. So Hulk already ruining Savage's title reign. Um, Not a good sign here, especially with some of the crowd reactions you've been getting recently. Anywho, in a seemingly second flirtation with the dark side, Hulk with the chair then goes crazy, nailing Jimmy Hart, nailing Kevin Sullivan, nailing the giant repeatedly. When he goes to the outside, um, Doug Dillinger, head of security, comes out, as does Mongo McMichael from the uh, commentary table, and his buddy The Fridge, and Hogan decks all of them with chairs as well in an angle the commentators are trying to play up that Hogan is snapped here. Considering the um, suspension angle they ran a couple of weeks ago where they said that himself and Ric Flair and a couple of others were on probation, I think it was a giant was the other one, um, I'm starting to wonder if maybe Hogan has a movie or a TV show to film here and this is a way to get him off TV with a suspension. What this does do for Hogan, however, is fire up the crowd who come back with some really big Hogan chants and compared to the Hogan sucks last week, that's a big turnaround in fortunes for the Hulkster. Gene then comes out to interview Hogan and Hogan 
takes all Savage's catchphrases, starting with what it is is what it is, before whining about how he deserves a title shot and giving us an ooh, yeah. Macho continues to help bury himself, where he says, I needed Hulk Hogan's help, but he obviously didn't need mine, so I don't know how they convinced him that that was a good idea to say that. And Hogan again asks for a title shot. Macho Man explains that next week he'll be defending the title up against Ric Flair, and at Starcade he'll have a match against a Japanese opponent, as well as defending the title against the winner of the triangle match earlier in the evening. He says once he gets through those two obstacles, he will happily defend the title against Hulk Hogan. Hulk asks the crowd if they want to see the Mega Powers explode part two, and they all seemingly go along with it, which Gene says we should have expected. And then we go back to the commentary team to wrap up the night's event, and that ends Nitro. So, overall, a really solid episode. The matches were either short or good all the way through. Um, big name star value, uh, title match, really sort of brought out the big guns. And when I clicked on the network to watch this episode, and I clicked through the thumbnails to see what the matches were, I never look at the spoilers, but I do look at the matches, I was quite impressed with what was on the lineup here. So, solid effort from WCW, and you can see... Um, how they're building some momentum in the ratings here with that. That being said, we've not yet seen what the WWF has to offer, so let's go over and see if Raw can offer a show of equal or better value here. Thankfully not really with any spoilers, more just action shots of what had happened. And we find out that Diesel and The Undertaker had squared off in the dressing room the night before. And we get told that we're going to see some more about that. Um, we then see a video of Jeff Jarrett attacking Ahmed Johnson at the pay-per-view. And that included uh, throwing him into a chair that Jerry Lawler was holding up in place. And we get told that there's going to be some retribution there. And of course our first match of the evening is Jeff Jarrett up against Fatu. <laughs> Jarrett makes his entrance in his classic WWF white attire from when he first started with the stripes and the cowboy hat to his classic WWF theme music as well. Fatu comes out and to his also awesome theme song and curiously throws the four life symbol with his hands while saying four life and somewhere in the back Razor and Diesel are writing this down taking notes for some future gimmick infringement. The match gets underway with Jeff Jarrett stalling and strutting, then Fatu takes over with some punches and headbutts before putting on a strut of his own, and in a sort of look into Vince McMahon's crystal ball, he offers this gem. Fatu has a great deal more rhythm than Jeff Jarrett, so he either filed that one away for future reference or he knew what he was doing all along. 
Jeff Jarrett hits a DDT on Fatu, who no-sells it. Then there's a botch punch spot where Jarrett seemingly wanted to have his block before being hit, and Fatu was already throwing the punch. Jarrett sells anyway, so no bother. And then Fatu runs shoulder first into the ring post when Jarrett escapes the charge. From there, Jarrett hits a lovely honky-tonk man-style neckbreaker before they brawl on the outside for a bit as we go to commercial break. When we come back, Jeff Jarrett is in control, hitting a nice axe handle off the second rope, but when he tries again, he's met with a gut punch from the future Rikishi. Fatu hits a back, uh, backdrop, sorry, a nice big corner clothesline and a backbreaker, and then he puts Jarrett in the corner and runs center ring in a diamond cutter type move, but seemingly injures his shoulder on the move. Jarrett then picks him up, throws him shoulder first into the post again, and when he goes to slap on the figure four, Ahmed Johnson hits a ring, signaling Jeff Jarrett it's time to get out of there, which he does, bails, wanting no part of Ahmed Johnson. From there we go up into the crowd where Doc Hendricks is interviewing Gorilla Monsoon. They talk about The Undertaker and how he's been named the number one contender to face Bret Hart at the Royal Rumble. Uh, they talk about how Jeff Jarrett had entered himself into the Royal Rumble, but Gorilla Monsoon says he threw his hat in, I threw it straight back out, he'll be taking on Armand Johnson instead, and they say on the weekend they will start releasing names for the Rumble, some people you know, some you don't know, some you've never heard of, etc. We then go to a Gold Dust promo aimed at Razor Ramon, and he's seemingly very gay. Um, he's just pretty much talking about what he wants to do to Razor, but using movie quotes and, you know, suggestive language. I've no problem with it, but they are sort of, you know, it's easy to see how people got up in arms in this because the first real, what was meant to be at the time, I guess, gay character in wrestling history or certainly in WWF television history, I don't know, going back in, in the, before I was born, um, they've made him out to be definitely a predator. Um, and the implication here is gay, gay guys are heels and they will try and sleep with any guy they see. So it's a little bit creepy, really, when you think about it like that. We see some footage from Coliseum Home Video, which I loved as a child, the night before at the pay-per-view, where Todd Pettengale was attempting to interview Paul Bear and The Undertaker about their upcoming title match before Big Daddy called Diesel bust in, uh, went to grab Paul Bear and The Undertaker grabbed his arm and there was a bit of a stare down and seemingly we've got a match set coming up here and it looks like the on-again, off-again heel turn of Diesel is back on this week. When we come back from commercial break, we're up to our next contest, which is Nature Boy Buddy Landell, of course, coming out to the WWF version of Ric Flair's theme music, up against the not-yet-hardcore Bob Holly. Uh, he's still very much the race car driver here. And as the entrances are being conducted, Doc Hendricks finally shills me something I would love to buy, the WrestleMania arcade game on Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, and PlayStation 1. Um, absolutely, Doc, sign me up. I'll have one of them. The $69.99 plus postage price tag is a little steep, though, in my opinion. He also gives us his best slack-jawed yokel impersonation where he reminds us that it's only available in the United States. So, no offense to my brethren in America, but that's sometimes how you guys sound to the rest of the world. Um, you do best to keep people with that kind of accent off TV. Then again, my Australian accent is awful, and my native England does have some pretty rough accents as well, which I won't go into because I don't want to offend everybody in the one show. If you've never seen or heard of Nature Boy Buddy Landell, I'll paint you a vivid picture for your minds here. He is basically the love child of Ric Flair and Greg the Hammer Valentine. Seriously, if you took those two together and morphed them into one being, this is exactly how it would look. There's a lot of punch-kicky offense early from both men as they exchange control, with no one really getting the upper hand and no real moves being put in here. 
Landell's pretty dull when he's on the offense. A lot of just sort of grabbing and raking the head against the row. The odd stomp. Very, very slow and methodical early on. Um, some punches and some kicks. A couple of clotheslines sprinkled in. It's pretty clunky with the guys not really gelling well here at all. Uh, we get a drop toe hold by Buddy Landell and a very lazy leg lock STF type move. He locks the legs up and holds the head, but he doesn't actually wrench at all. So he's just sat there doing nothing. It's pretty bad. Uh, when he gets up, we get a backdrop for a two count. Then he goes into an even lazier camel clutch. No arms over the knees, just sat on the back and holding the chin. Not wrenching back, nothing at all. Um, so no surprises, no submission, and he just gets back up. Bob Holly then hits a very rough-looking DDT on Landell, who doesn't want to bump face down, goes off to the side, and in actual fact is up before Bob Holly is, and punches Bob Holly, who takes a back bump, but springs up looking for another, and this sequence is repeated three times before Holly puts Landell in the corner for a 10-punch spot, hitting a nice-looking Hurricane Rana, but then going into some mounted punches, not the pin, and a couple of clotheslines, which picks him up a two-count. He misses a drop kick, and in wrestling logic, he's on the mat selling, allowing Buddy Landell to run the ropes and hit what they called his corkscrew elbow. In actual fact, it was just an elbow drop, starting at the head and landing on the side. And he gets a 1-2-3, and this shocked me. Um, this is actually going to rate on our hammerlock scale, and it's going to get a pretty high 6 out of 10, because it's dull, it's clunky, they had no chemistry, they had no crowd heat, and it had a shit finish. This was a really bad match, and by far the worst of the two shows on this evening. Thankfully, we go to a commercial break so I can catch my breath from that pile of trash, and we get some really cool retro commercials here, including the Hotshot Basketball System. Basically, it's a little plastic toy where you press a spring lever and it shoots a basketball towards a basket. I had a Shack Attack version, one of them, when I was a kid. Very similar uh, technology, so that was cool. Unfortunately for the game, it was Shaq in what appeared to be the free throw line. And we all know, if you're a basketball fan, how that turned out in years to come. And we get a cool commercial for Milton Bradley Karate Fighters as well, which has been a staple of mid-90s WWF. I always wanted one of them, but I don't think they were really widely released in Australia, so I never saw one in the shops. If I do have any active Australian listeners and they want to tell me they did see or have one or knew someone who had one, that'd be great. As a matter of fact, if there's anyone in Australia that listens regularly, it'd be good to hear from you because seemingly everyone that listens to the show is either in America or the UK, so that'd be pretty cool. There are over 30 countries now that have listened to the podcast, but all the correspondence comes from either England or America thus far. Anywho, moving on, and we go next to Brother Love interviewing Ted DiBiase, and oh shit, another historic moment. Not quite on par with Medusa dropping the title of the trash, but it's Ted DiBiase telling us that the night before's beatdown of Savio Vega by Santa was actually performed by Santa Claus. Yes, you guessed it, the very short-lived give gimmick of the future Balls Mahoney, where he played an evil Santa from the nor- from the South Pole, sorry, not the North Pole, and Ted DiBiase tells us he's joined the Million Dollar Corporation. We then go to a commercial break, which has got a very cool ad for the Raw Bowl, which will be the next episode of Raw I Watch, January 1, 1996. Interesting to see how Nitro counteracts that one. And when we come back, it is time for our main event of the evening, Yokozuna up against the bad guy, Razor Ramon, for the Intercontinental Championship. Before Razor comes out, Goldust takes a seat in the aisleway to watch the match. Razor walks past him, seemingly either ignoring him or not noticing him. And when he gets into the ring, his pyro doesn't go off, but he is covered in a gold rain, so some gold dust hitting him there. Uh, This distracts him and allows Yokozuna to get in and attack him, but it doesn't last long. Razor fires back with some punches and Yoko bails to the outside. 
When we come back in, Yoko hits a nice body slam on Razor, but misses an elbow drop. Razor beats the shit out of Yoko with two huge clotheslines, then stupidly attempts a sunset flip, but very wisely gets out of dodge before Yoko's giant ass squashes his head into a million pieces. We get Yokozuna's nerve hold of death next, and then Razor eventually fights out of this, but Yoko does nail him with a clothesline, missing the right and coming back with a left as Razor came off the ropes in a pretty cool spot. Um, Razor begins punching Yokozuna, who does the whole big man teetering spot for an absolute eternity, before eventually taking the bump and going down. We get an ad break. When we come back, they're exchanging punches. Uh, Razor Ramon comes off the ropes and hits a big leaping clothesline, which is pretty cool. Then a second rope bolt bulldog. But before he can put the finishing move on Yokozuna, the lights start flashing. And Undertaker heads down to the ring with Paul Bearer wheeling out a casket. So I didn't see this one coming. I know he had sort of finished the feud with Mabel by here for crushing his face. I didn't actually realize he got into another feud with Yokozuna over his part in it, but it looks as though he does. The casket is one that uh, Mabel had brought out for The Undertaker earlier. It had the graffiti and stuff all over it. And interestingly, my eagle eye caught on the top side of the casket. It actually had BSK spray painted on. So for those of you unaware, that stands for Bone Street Crew and is the little backstage group to rival the clique that included The Undertaker, Yokozuna, Fatu, and a few others. Uh, the Godfather, I believe, as well back in the day. We then get a graphic on the screen of Shawn Michaels. Vince tells us don't go away because when we come back from the last commercial break, we'll have Shawn Michaels. My daughter actually says to me, Daddy, he has Monster High earrings, which he did appear to be wearing. Monster High wasn't invented back then, but he was ahead of his time. And then she quips that he looks like a girl. Couldn't disagree with any of those things. We go to a commercial and we come back. And we have Doc Hendricks interviewing Razor Ramon, who pretty much tells us that he's not gay. He likes women. Gold dust, it's all right to be gay, but don't send me your filth, which is... Pretty level-headed response, in fairness. Um, no problem with that. Jerry Lawler says that he's read the contents of the letter that Goldust had sent Razor that's caused all this problem the night before in the pay-per-view, and he said that the contents of the letter even embarrassed him. Now, considering he's had an, as enough underage girls to basically start his own elementary school, I find that a little hard to believe, allegedly. We then find out that the Don't Go Away Sure Michaels is next is actually a complete bait and switch and it's just a shitty music video documenting the career of Shawn Michaels. It was so soppy and so cheesy that I didn't even look for a version of it online to play for you. It was crap and I was pretty pissed off that they pulled that to be honest. Those three minutes of my life I could definitely have back and that ends Raw on a little bit of a lackluster note. So considering the high I ended Nitro with it's going to be very interesting to see how this pans out in the ratings. Let's head there now and find out. So the crowd heat definitely went to WCW on this episode. Nitro had it beat with Raw. Um, the live feel certainly helps here sometimes, and also the big pops for Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, the Macho Man, etc. Having all the big names on the show certainly helped WCW get the crowd going. And an absolute snooze fest between Buddy Landell and Bob Holly on the other side probably had people flipping the channel to Nitro at home as well as in the audience wishing they could. Um, speaking of all the star power, WCW also takes the characters uh, side of it here as well. They featured Sting, The Giant, The Macho Man, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Eddie Guerrero, um, who's who of top stars, Lex Luger, really padding out the main event coming into Starcade, all the, the big time players around the title situation. On the other hand, WWF lied to us about Sean coming out. Undertaker didn't have a match. Diesel was just shown in footage from the night before. British Bulldog and Owen Hart were both missing. Um, Bret Hart wasn't on the show live either. Really sort of phoned it in a little bit here considering they'd just come off a pay-per-view the night before. 
storyline i'm again going to go with wcw it was hard to say that wwf did much to advance their stories other than just showed some clips of what had happened at the pay-per-view really they didn't do a lot on this show to advance the storylines even though they were underway and running whereas wcw built up lex and sting beautifully um not happy with what they did with the macho man but they did put hogan keep hogan relevant in the mix and they kept the giant strong in the mix here as well um flair as well getting the victory over guerrero helped keep him strong leading into starcade without barry and guerrero so overall some really good storyline advancement from wcw Production category, I'm going to go a tie. There was a couple of little gaffes from WCW, nothing major, but a couple of little things. Uh, I'm still not liking the in and out to the commercials with the commentators, especially at the end of the show after the main event. It's a bit of a cold finish both ways. WWF didn't do a lot to capitalize on this, and ending the show with a music video really would have sent people back to WCW as well, in my opinion. So production wasn't up to snuff on either end, really leaving us with our last category of match quality and this is clearly going to wcw um the main event for wwf yoko's too big to go now they called him 641 pounds in the in the actual match on commentary i wouldn't be surprised he's huge Ray's is still pretty good you know he, he's very very good actually i should say but bob holly and buddy landell was awful and jeff jarrett and fatu was average at best Whereas over on the other side, Sting and Lex got short matches against named opponents, which I like. Guerrero and Flair was quite solid, and Macho carried the Giants to a pretty decent main event as well. Nothing mind-blowing on either episode, but nothing shit on WCW and all big-name talent, which always makes the match seem better. Um, an example of this now is the current... Some, probably for me personally more than, you know, widespread, but the apathy towards the um, 205 Live show and the crowds as well if you watch it live. If you compare that to the hot crowd at full sale for the Cruiserweight uh, Classic, you'll see a big difference in how a match comes across on television. The Cruiserweight Classic, every match seemed like it was going to be a five-star classic because the crowd were into it and the guys were over. 205 Live seems like a slightly upgraded version of Velocity to me, and I am loving some of the characters. Noam Dar, Rich Swan, Jack Gallagher, um, the new and improved Neville, Brian Kendrick and Tajiri back running. They're all guys I like. It's just not that enjoyable to watch because of the way the show comes across on tv so that was definitely evident here between the difference in raw and nitro that'll do it for this episode so another quick one banged out because i've had a day home with nothing really to do i am hoping to record tomorrow night with richie for king of the ring and great american bash and that will be out soon and then after that there'll be another pay-per-view episode in all likelihood which will be the in your house from the night before this one up against the starcade still to come for wcw so stay tuned there's a bit coming out we're also looking into the possibility of doing a couple of movie episodes in the future here as well and we're heading into 1996 which i find very exciting thank you all for listening get in touch with us on twitter and facebook as always please leave us a five-star review if you like the show check us out on 4cr and do go and listen to all of our podcast friends that we've mentioned previously on the show as well that'll do it for me thank you and speak to you soon
finding my own. Then it says I can't cut the trouble zone. On my radio tape, play a box right. Just loud enough so folks can hear it. Like C. Me off they the pulled me off the hill, but that's the story, y'all. 